Hello and welcome back to another episode of Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Max Frost. Joining me today is my co-host, Matt Weinset. Hi, Matt. Hey, Max. How are you doing? Doing well. Excited to talk about Gary. Yeah, so let's talk about Gary. Our guest today is Gary Schmidt. He's a resident scholar here doing strategic studies in the foreign policy department. Uh, Gary's got a PhD from the University of Chicago, and we have him on the show today to talk about some aspects of the American strategic outlook, but more specifically, an essay he wrote in The American Interest about neoconservatism. Yeah, it's called For Neocons, It's the Regime, Stupid. And the subtitle is Neoconservative as a Slur, which makes sense. I've been called a neocon before. Never once has somebody said that in a positive way toward me, much like McJagger in the intro to this podcast, if you picked up on that. He wrote a song in 2005 called Sweet Neocon, and I encourage you to Google the lyrics because it is incredibly negative. 2005 was a very tough year for the neocons, and it is a shame that my hero, McJagger, hates my philosophy so much. Yeah, so without further ado, here is Gary. Gary, thank you for coming on Banter today. You bet. So we wanted to talk with you about your piece in the American Interest titled Neocon as a Slur. Now, I was recently added to a Twitter list called, let me get this right, AEI, Neocon Zionist Warmongers. And I, I don't know what I did to be important enough to be added to this list. I guess just working at AEI. But so as you write in your article, Neocon has now been a slur for the past decade, two decades now. Why is that? What, why does that? what does it mean when someone calls you a Neocon? And does it bear any resemblance to what a Neocon actually is? Well, that's a, it's, <laughs> there are a whole uh, slew of books that have been written, you know, trying to define neocon. And so actually one of the problems is that precisely because there is no one, you know, definition, I think, that would satisfy everybody, you know, whether they're neocon or not. The The result is that it can, it, it slips into being just used whenever somebody's upset with a particular policy, particularly these days in foreign policy. And so that's broadened. It used to be that neocon... Uh, when it first became sort of a word tossed around to describe people that they they just didn't like was just sort of hawk, you know, uh, or more aggressively, you know, an American imperialist, and and so so and again because the word uh, you know isn't defined, um, it's it's easy enough to do that, but but the reality is of course neocon has a particular history and and that people have you know basically forgotten. So when people like Tucker Carlson or Tulsi Gabbard call John Bolton a neocon, for example, he's obviously a hawk, but is he a neocon? No. I mean, again, John's uh, he's used to be a colleague here at AEI, and, and before that, there were things that uh, John and I would work on together when I ran my own place, The uh, as I say in the article, the infamous project for the New American Century. Um, so there's an overlap between traditional conservatives and neoconservatives on different issues, but they're not the same. Um, John, in particular, is not somebody who's particularly concerned about democracy promotion or uh, other issues, and he probably leans a lot more on, you know, sort of uh, against uh, multilateralism and those topics, whereas I think a neoconservative is much more open to those that kind of framework for international affairs. So did neoconservatism, did it come out of Reaganism? I mean, did it, when, when, in your experience, would you say this all started? Yeah, I mean... I think probably the real origins had to do with the fact that there were domestic neoconservatives. Um, there were people who were um, essentially Democrats and liberals, uh, who but who but 
um, began to doubt that some of the programs, the domestic programs that you saw from the Johnson administration, the, the Great Society programs, were probably not being as productive as, as one would want. And so neoconservatives were famously, you know, sort of liberals who had been gobsmacked by reality. So, but a lot of those uh, original domestic neocons had been really quite far left uh, when they started off as young academics or young uh, commentators, and but they were still uh, uh, anti-communists. And so, about the same time that Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon started to to put forward the policy of détente, um, they began to write. A much not much more, but more about international affairs, foreign affairs, and their complaint about détente was that it somehow became it sort of suggested that there was a kind of moral equivalence between the United States and the Soviet Union. And as 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 anti-communists that they were, um, they objected to that, thinking both that it was probably morally problematic, but also that as a strategic matter, it really didn't matter that you kept the distinction alive. Yeah, and you talk about in the essay, the Gene Kirkpatrick essay, Dictatorships and Double Standards. Was that, do you think, the like the groundbreaking moment when neoconservatism really became defined by its foreign policy? Because you mentioned all these books. I We both grew up in the 90s. And when I would hear neocon growing up, it just was associated with the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. I went back and read that Irving Crystal book, which I have right here, uh, Neoconservatism, the, Autobi- mm, the Autobiography of an Idea. And I was shocked that there's basically not even maybe one essay in the entire book on foreign policy. It was all about the Great Society and how they're going to improve that. So was it with Gene Kirkpatrick's essay that it really became a foreign policy program? Well, well? I think think they didn't write much about it uh, before. I mean, Gene's article really, another former colleague here at AEI um, and former ambassador to the UN, obviously, uh, that article sort of galvanized a position about how to think about the differences between regimes. Um, that had gotten its legacy again from the pushback against detente from you know a decade earlier. So yeah, no, the original neocons didn't write much about foreign policy, and actually, the truth is, as much as uh, I admire Irving Kristol, uh, the occasional piece he did on foreign policy, particularly in the Wall Street Journal, I, I wouldn't say I was you know sort of I thought those were so groundbreaking or particularly influential. Were those, do you have specific ones in mind, like were those in the 90s or before? No, no, those were the, you know, sort of late 70s. Okay. I mean, they, 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 they weren't. They were bad. They weren't bad or idiotic. They just didn't grab people the way that uh, Kirkpatrick's piece did. What was the thesis of that? It's been a while. I don't know if I've read that. I know that. The double set. The, yeah, dictatorships and double standards. Yeah, so this comes again after there had been the Soviet Union had made a fairly significant push in Central America in the Middle East and in Africa. And it's it's also during the period of after after the Ford and Nixon administrations and when Jimmy Carter's president and people began to think that Carter's presidency was it was just too weak when it came to asserting American interests abroad. And one of her chief com- so she made a big point of saying, look, there are these really three kinds of regimes in the world. There's liberal democracy, and then there's the totalitarians, and then there's these autocrats. And her, her, the core of her complaint was that the U.S. was too easily uh, looking or ignoring the challenges to autocratic regimes, uh, with the result that, that bad folks, communist-supported uh, uh, folks, were 
taking over these regimes and the U.S. had to keep in mind these big distinctions between regimes. And so therefore, for example, in, in Nicaragua uh, during the 70s, you know, an autocratic regime got f- uh, felled by the Sandinistas who were became apparent were being supported by Cuba and, and the Soviets. And Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and Bernie Sanders, yeah. <laughs> um, and so her point was is that, you know, as a matter of American interest, we had to keep these distinctions alive. And in her case, it was being a little bit more sympathetic to trying to s- sustain these autocratic regimes. Yeah, well, as Matt hears me talk about all the time, the Shaw, the <laughs> case, perfect case study in that whole policy was the Shaw. Yeah, no, the Shaw, Nick, Nicaragua, and then some you know, other places. Um, I think what's interesting is so Reagan obviously was quite taken with that uh, piece, as was his then real national security advisor, Dick Allen. Uh, what was interesting was, uh, and of course, as soon as they came into office, Central America was becoming a very hot topic. And for a while, um, for example, Kissinger and some others, they put a big commission together to try to gain support for pushing it back against the Sandinistas and what they were also doing in El Salvador. And what happened was is that they it failed as a policy. You just couldn't get people to support it. It was mostly just you know stopping stopping the commies at the border uh, kind of rhetoric and logic, um, which wasn't completely stupid, but nevertheless it just didn't, wasn't salient. So at that point, then there was kind of a debate within the neoconservative uh, groups, and the slight change, but it became an important change, was the Reagan administration moved to saying, well, not only are we going to support the Salvadoran uh, democracy because it's you know fighting against uh, communist insurgency, but it's also because we support liberal democracy. And so that kind of flipped. So Reagan's doctrine wasn't just simply about pushing back against these uh, uh, proxies, the communist proxies around the world, but it was also, it turned out, in key cases like in South Korea and the Philippines and, and, um, and other places where uh, democratic forces began to challenge the autocratic forces and the Reagan administration wound up siding with the Democrats uh, to the benefit of those countries. Now, is it fair to draw a straight line from everything that you just described there to the Iraq War? The logical, you know... No, not at all. Again, one of the points I try to make in the piece is that you have to, I mean, if it's the regime stupid, um, there's still all kinds of other factors that have to be, you know, sort of uh, uh, picked up to think about sort of how to apply that. Um, you know, Gene had one view. Uh, others of us had a different view about how assertive we should be. But again, you have to figure out what your coalition of forces are. You know, how strong can you be? Do you have allies that go along with you? What's the internal dynamics of the country you're looking at? And so, you know, so for example, um, pushing democracy in, you know, Eastern Europe um, after the fall of the Soviet Union obviously was something we supported. Uh, but it was also easier. They, those were countries that had some democracy in the past. Um, they'd also had a kind of a civil, civilizational uh, attachment to the West. Um, whereas, obviously, with the Arab Spring, you know, when those revolts happened, it was going to be a much tougher role just because of culture and histories. Um, that said, I mean, I often think people overlook the fact that there's been relative success with, you know, the first of the Arab Springs, which is Tunisia. Mm-hmm. So... There's a little bit of skepticism about 
now there's a skepticism because of Iraq and Afghanistan about doing any of this. And I think that overlooks the actual success in promoting democracy since the late 70s. Yeah, so you mentioned the Kirkpatrick essay. And then when I read about these things, I kind of you hear that's one of the foundational speeches or essays of new yep. conservatism. The other one might be Krauthammer. I think he delivered this essay at AEI in 2004 mm-hmm. on democratic realism. Do you think, does that fit into the neoconservative tradition, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think Charles was trying to, I mean, he had a complicated history. He you know, began as a liberal Democrat, moved to sort of being less so. I remember having a dinner with him back in the early 80s to, uh, to talk about Nicaragua. Um, and so his, he was pretty skeptical of what the Reagan administration was doing. And I can't say my conversation with him at a dinner made a huge difference. But over time, he, he became uh, more more internationalist but conservative. And so, for example, Krauthammer was, um, and others were not particularly interested in the U.S. Um, being supportive of U.S. intervention in the uh, Balkans. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas some of us were, again, this gets back to the, the fact is there are just going to be disagreements about how, how assertive the U.S. should be depending upon the conditions. So Yeah, but in, in the popular narrative, that Kratomer speech at AEI is one of like the crowning neocon agenda thing. Yeah, I think so. Again, I think Charles would push back that he, that he would try to keep the distance between himself and others, yeah. um, but I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a distinction without a st- distinction. Yeah, so my, my third... Would the third one then be so Bush's second inaugural address? Would that does that fit into this tradition, or do you think that went too far? Where he basically said survival of liberty here depends on liberty elsewhere, and we have to wage. And there's I, I remember Peggy Noonan wrote a column saying it was way too God infused. Yeah, the, one of the funny things is is some of the rhetoric in that speech um, has been attributed to you know sort of neocon influence. Mm-hmm. I dare anybody to actually. Uh, say who the neocons were that were so influential inside the uh, the Bush White House. I mean, um, you know, Condi Rice was not a neocon. Uh, George Bush ran on a campaign pledge of being a much more humble, you know, foreign policy. Don Rumsfeld wasn't a neocon. I mean, so it goes on and on. Cheney wouldn't ever think of himself as a neocon. And I know for a fact that some of that rhetoric was um, uh, suggested to the president by a Harvard historian who definitely is not a neocon. Now, having said said that, the rhetoric was, you know, something that was over the top. On the other hand, there's a core of truth to it, which is, you know, we do know from, you know, social science and history that the more liberal democracies there are in the world, the more peace there is. Liberal democracies don't go to war with each other. So just as a matter of national interest, it's important to keep that that in mind. Um, doesn't mean liberal democracies don't go to war because obviously we do. But among each other, we, we tend to you know scream and yell at each other and complain about each other, but we actually don't shoot at each other. So to change the topic slightly here, um, in this piece that you wrote, you talk a lot about I mean, it's a slur, essentially, neocon. You know, you don't like what someone... You think someone's foreign policy is too hawkish. You call them a neocon. Yeah, when my kids are angry with me, they turn to me and they go, <laughs> Dad, you're a neocon. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, given that, is there, I mean, what what are the role, is there still an organized neoconservative movement or are there still people who self-identify as neocons and... Or is this largely a thing? It's, no, it's look, it's a little bit like Irving Kristol. Irving Kristol didn't coin the term neocon. It was given to him by actually somebody from the left. Um, 
but Irving's reaction was, you know, okay, so that's what, you know, people are going to call me and it's, you know, it, it makes some sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think those of us who are most identified with that particular movement were, you know, it's just the way the world is. And, and again, I think as long as it's understood what that actually means, I'm perfectly happy to live with the, the term. Do you think there should be any effort to rehabilitate the label, especially now? There's all these conferences going on. There's the we just had the National Conservatism Conference, where there seems like the GOP or the conservative people are trying to think of a post-Trump philosophical program. Reading Irving Crystal's essays, I think neoconservatism is a pretty good one. Should or is it or is the label just too poisoned? It's now a slur for all time. It's probably too poisoned, <laughs> if I had to guess. Um, Sad. Yeah, but the but uh, you know so. Again, when we started uh, the project for the New American Century, um, not that things are exactly the same because they're not, but the the period after the Cold War, there was a lot of Republican, particularly, effort to sort of let's bring bring the country home, let's concentrate on domestic affairs, let's not get involved abroad. So there's a big fight about you know U.S. involvement in the Balkans, for example. Pull out of Europe, you know. Let's pull out of the Middle East. Donald Trump was ranting and raving about Japan back then. Um, so, um, and what happened is, you know, we just put out that we thought here's the kind of foreign policy we think makes the most sense um, for Americans, and also it's in our interest. Nine uh, eleven happens, and it's a, the realization is that the the Bush foreign policy isn't going to be adequate to deal with that those events. So, you know, in some respects, what you do in this kind of situation is you keep writing what you do, you keep putting out what you think should be done, and then, unfortunately, circumstances kind of drive um, what people begin to understand that there may be a benefit to that perspective um, in foreign policy. And so I think uh, you kind of have to wait uh, to sort of see whether, you know, it's completely dead or not. The other thing, which is kind of a, you know, thumb-sucking point on my part is is um, if you really think about sort of what neoconservatism is and it has to do with regime and and the uh, priority given to liberal democracy, that's been at, at, at bottom at the core of American foreign policy from day one. I mean, you cannot read the Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address and not think that somehow that point isn't an essential part of the American character, and so therefore it's going to be an essential part of the foreign policy. So as much as a lot of conservatives want to sort of change um, things, um, it's going be, they're going to be hard-pressed to uh, completely eliminate that element uh, of the American psyche. So when you look at, you know, say Trump is out of office, you've got someone else coming in, it could be your ideal candidate. What kind of policies do you see that would bring, you know, for a strong America back in the world to everyone says liberal democracy is on the wane to change that and to get it back on the uh, upswing? Well, what would you like to see done? I mean, look, I think, first of all, you have to take account of what the situation is. The situation is, is that as much as advances in democracy have happened over the, you know, essentially America, once America became a great power, uh, the number of democracies in the world really uh, expanded. Do you uh, put that at 45, the year America became a great power? Or Yeah. I mean, we could have happened earlier, but again, there was a domestic pushback. I mean, we really became a great power in, in around 1900. We didn't act like a great power with these kinds of responsibilities till after World War II. So, 
you know, and if you look at things like NATO, people always think of NATO as just a, a security agreement. But it, but um, if you look very closely at both the the, the Atlantic Charter, which it you know sort of takes as its guiding light, and actually the treaty itself, it was always about protecting Western liberal democracy, and it was understood as such. Now that doesn't mean that you don't make you know compromises to deal with the practicalities of world affairs, but but. You know, as long as you have the larger goal in mind, you sort of have a way of, of thinking about how to do these things in a prudent way. The first thing a new president would have to do to sort of, you know, sort of turn the corner from my perspective is understand that the international order really does depend upon American leadership. And American leadership is really about protecting and sustaining and to the degree possible expanding that liberal order. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, sort of giving away our sovereignty. I'm talking about, you know, a coalition, alliance of liberal democracies uh, as much as possible. Uh, I think we're richer we're more, and we're stronger when we understand that as a sort of guiding light. Now, in the particulars, uh, you know, some of this, you know, people think that sort of the confrontation between China and the United States is, you know, more of a product of the current president of China and the current president of the United States. But, you know, if you really look at it and you look at what the Chinese have been saying uh, really since Mao or even before Mao, they understand that a strong liberal democratic United States is automatically a threat to to them because of the legitimacy question. You know, if a country of 300 million people can self-rule, and it's not necessarily the case that, you know, a billion Chinese shouldn't be able to engage in self-rule. Um, and I think that's been actually a problem. I mean, that's been an issue since the country was formed. I mean, the monarchies of Europe didn't look at the new United States and go, hey, that's great. We've got, there's a republic over there. <laughs> if, if they thought anything and they thought, well, it's a republic over there, so I hope it stays there. You know, this fight between regime types isn't going to go away. I mean... It's clear that's you know at the core of the of the tension between uh, Iran and the United States. Uh, there's just two different kinds of regimes, and you can't. And Tehran knows very well that they can't escape. You know, having uh, the United States be the great Satan, and the great Satan, of course, isn't something you know sort of temptation. The great Satan is this temptation about you know self-rule. Well, speaking of speaking of which, also right now we're seeing everything in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, it kind of seems like a microcosm of this clash between democracy and authoritarianism. So can you give us some of your thoughts on what's happening there as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a sad case because uh, when, you when you know, the first time I went to Hong Kong was working in the White House and I was asked to go take a look at some embassy issues in, inside China. And, and then afterwards, I came back through Hong Kong and you know, the first time you're there, you're kind of blown away by, by just this remarkable place where, you know, a colony that you know was basically mud huts um, because of uh, sort of liberal ideas about the rule of law and, and economics it explodes into this uh, majestic you know uh, city. You know, again, you're just kind of blown away by it. I mean, the British thought that they had to turn the thing over. They didn't have any option when it came to China. And of course, the uh, the theory back when they turned it over to China was that that China would progress as it progressed economically, it would progress into you know. Uh, more liberal politically. 
Um, that hasn't happened, and the result is is that they've, over the last you know decade uh, or more, really begun to squeeze Hong Kong in a variety of ways uh, to undermine that sense of liberty that the Hong Kong people have enjoyed. And so the protests are just a natural result of, of really pushing back against that, that squeezing. And, of course, in Beijing, Hong Kong is even more important because, again, uh, President Xi has really doubled down on on reaffirming party control and, and the legitimacy of the party control inside his country. And here he has this place called Hong Kong, uh, which is part of their sovereign territory, which is liberal and in- increasingly wanting to be democratic. So, again, it gets back to this inevitable tension between kinds of regimes. Unfortunately, our levers are really small to, to really help the people of Hong Kong, except we should be saying the, the obvious, which is we support your efforts at you know, uh, keeping the one country, two system, uh, system that the Chinese pledged alive. What about with Taiwan, where we have a little bit more influence, I think, as we sell them arms, but geographically, they're still, China has way more like geographic advantages over what happens in Taiwan, I would think. So what, what do democracy and freedom-loving neocons in this room do and think about uh, the well, uh, issue. Yeah, well, I'm a big, a big pro- uh, proponent of uh, expanding ties uh, to Taiwan precisely because they're a liberal democracy, but they're a liberal democracy that if you look at the uh, geography, they are incredibly key to uh, stability and security in, 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 the, in East Asia. Um, they're you know, we have a security treaty with Japan and a security treaty, formal security treaty with the Philippines. Taiwan's right between. If Taiwan falls, then those two security partners are really, um, you know, blank out of luck. Um, so it's really important as a strategic matter that we support Taiwan. But Taiwan is a liberal democracy. And so one of the results is that it's an open democracy. It's an open society. And, you know, you're talking about 23 million people facing, you know, a billion plus Chinese with all the resources that they have. So for the longest time, we just told ourselves that the Chinese weren't really interested in, in, uh, in reclaiming Taiwan or that they didn't have the capacity to do so. And unfortunately, you know, that stopped being uh, really the case uh, about 10 years ago. And, and we haven't really caught up. Yeah, just, I mean, is Taiwan, if the Chinese did decide they wanted to take it over, just how defensible would it be? Is it just the idea that it's a tripwire and the Chinese wouldn't do it because we would just attack the mainland back? Well, nobody should ever presume they know what the Chinese think. I mean, we, we consistently, just as they get us wrong, we consistently get autocrats wrong about, you know, what they think they need to do to preserve their own uh, rule. Less is not more here, and we need to sort of do more to give Taiwan the military capacity to sort of help themselves. But also we should be make it clear that, you know, under the Taiwan Relations Act, it's almost inevitable that we, we would be involved. We can't, just as a strategic matter, you can't, you can't have PRC uh, take Taiwan forcefully and not have all the East Asia security structure that we put in place all these years just fall apart. Well, on that... On that great note. <laughs> that great note. Well, yeah. um, thank you, Gary, for coming on the show. You bet. This is great. Thanks for having me. So thank you, Gary, and thank you all for listening. As always, if you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. We've gotten a lot of positive ratings on Ricochet, but for some reason, the algorithm really rewards us if they are iTunes reviews. And I want to read one right now. Got a great iTunes review from a guy named Definitely Not Steve. He titled <laughs> the comment, The Conservative Podcast of Our Times. 
Here's what he says. From informative book reviews to engaging interviews and commentary on current policy and political issues, banter is a must for both the average man and the politically obsessed. With an ever-growing line of top-shelf guests and two co-hosts committed to genuine discussion and analysis, the pod always makes you think critically about the issues of our day and is indeed a beacon of hope in these truly trying times. <laughs> definitely not Steve. Thank you, definitely Thank not Steve. I, I, I have a friend named Steve who I know listens. I wonder, but it, it's not him. It says it's definitely not him that left that review. No, that's, a, that's a nice review. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you, not Steve. Think, I think highlight of my week was when uh, Matt got an email from someone. He said, I got a nice got a nice compliment from this person. This person turned out to be my mom. So, so thank you, Mom, for listening and sending a nice uh, email. We appreciate that. Yeah, and the email was disguised. I had no idea. <laughs> we'll be back next week with a surprise mystery guest to talk about Max's newest favorite subject, fast casual restaurants and why they suck. I hate, I hate them. I don't understand why. I know you hate millennials. I, I mean, I don't, like, I, don't, I don't like millennials. The the issue of fast casual restaurants is if I'm gonna go out to eat, I'm gonna go spend money on food. Why would I not? Why would I go to a fast casual restaurant where the whole point the fast casual, the whole point of fast casual restaurant, is getting something and just either wolfing it down the spot, staring into your cell phone. You ever go to what's the one with like the rice bowls and stuff like that? Poke bowl. No, the one over here. There's. Oh, over here, where the podcast listeners all know. Where it's like the meze thing. Kava? Kava. You ever go to Kava? I went there for the first time the other week. Go into Kava. Sit there and just look around. You will be the only person not wolfing down your food, staring into your cell phone. I am that person. You are that person. I like doing that. I don't, I mean, millennials don't want to spend all their time cooking anymore. Cooking takes a long time. And you got stuff to do. I want to, like, I've got stuff to do. I don't want to spend an hour meal prepping or whatever. I'm going to go to Chipotle. For $9, I'll get a nice steak burrito that will fill me up, somewhat healthy. Maybe not healthy healthy, but protein, vegetables, carbs, all of it. And you get it over within within 10 minutes, and then you've got your meal, and you get on with your day. Yeah, but the thing is, everyone's saying millennials are in dire financial straits right now. Okay, yeah, well, older generations didn't go out to eat four, five, six nights a week. I mean, I... How, how many people do you know who literally go out to eat every single day? One of my roommates, Uber Eats, almost all of us. Yeah, meals. and then the, the delivery. Delivery is even worse than fast food. I agree with you there. The delivery of Taco Bell is not Delivery of not anything. Sustainable. Food, when you get it delivered, just is not good. When's the last time you've had delivery and you've been like, wow, this is just as good as if I got it at the restaurant? And it costs more. You're paying more for less. Yes and no. Chinese delivery is, is always a good call. I, feel, I mean, it's a little bit pricier, but you, no one ever regrets Chinese delivery. <laughs> Except when I have to go get my blood pressure done that night. I did regret Thai delivery one time. That made me sick. But beyond, other than the bad Thai, I've never regretted Chinese. And I see what you mean, but I don't know. Do you cook, you do you cook all your meals then if you don't want to go out? Or are you, yeah, just, I, you I, either cook or a nice restaurant? The only, If I'm going out to eat, I'll go out to a sit-down restaurant. I won't go for like fast casual. Unless it's late at night and I've been, I'm working or whatever. And it's like nine at night, and I've just got to get something quick. I've had Chipotle with you on at least two different occasions. Dude, both one time was when we had an, literally 20 minutes before the UVA game, the the championship game. I had to wolf them down and get there real quick. Mm-hmm. The other time was after a softball game. Yeah. Because it was nine. We could o'clock. have gone out to Ambar. Because it was nine o'clock. <laughs> because it was not, we could have gone to uh, what's the what's the one over here? The sushi place, the Michelin stars. Yeah, I don't know. Um, the Palm. They would have loved it. Yeah, we could have gone to the Palm, but. No, it's like it's nine o'clock at night. Gotta, I'm not gonna go home and cook. That I'm not gonna get to sleep until you know whatever. Yeah. But generally speaking, no, I don't go out to eat during the week. I refuse. Yeah, I've been. I've lately. I've been keeping track of how much money I spend, and I have noticed my Chipotle budget is a little bit higher than I would like it to be. So how I much can. Is it? 
I don't, I mean, I've got it on a spreadsheet, so I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. But I mean, either way, I'm going to go to Trader Joe's and spend a decent amount of money, or I'm going to go to Chipotle and spend a s- slightly higher amount of money and save time cooking. I mean, I think that for like $20, you could cook all your meals for the week. I don't know about that. I get, I'll get, i get a $10 steak from Trader Joe's. <laughs> okay, well, if you're, getting steak, <laughs> if you're getting steak for dinner every day. Yeah, well, I'll get chicken for about 6 bucks and steak for about 9 and that I can maybe get three meals out of that. So Where are you shopping? Trader Joe's. New York so can Strip. We, how can we start it in Trader Joe's? <laughs> I like Trader Joe's. <laughs> I like Trader Joe's, too. It's too crowded. That's the issue. Not it's, the one in Clarendon. Dude, the one in Clarendon's a madhouse. Depends when you go. When do you go? Usually Sunday evenings. Like post-dinner? Because that's a good time. That is a good time. Yeah, like Sunday. Like I like if I'll, like on my way back from church, I can stop by Trader Joe's. and You go to church in the evenings? I usually sleep in on Sundays. Then if I go, I'll go at 6 p.m. Go to Trader Joe's around 7.15. Okay, that's that's fine. I like to go grocery shopping Sunday nights. Yeah. Because if you go Sunday at like noon, 2 p.m., forget about it. Yeah. I mean, there's like literally the checkout line. You know, the checkout line literally snakes around. The one over here on U Street is the worst on, four, uh, on 14th Street. Yeah. The checkout line snakes around the whole place. There's so many people. They've all got their headphones in. Oh, they're, I... all, they're literally swiping on Tinder while they're picking out their... <laughs> <laughs> they're fake. I, 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 don't, the I, don't, I don't believe you've seen anybody on Tinder. But this, we were going, this might be a conversation for next time. But am I a bad guy for wearing headphones on the checkout line at Trader Joe's and only taking out one of them when I talk to the cashier? You know, I, the other day when I was grocery shopping, I was listening to an audiobook. Banter. <laughs> I was listening to banter. <laughs> and I was going to leave it in. And then I decided not to be that guy and took it out. Yeah. I, I don't even. I, I, I've got a thing. I don't like seeing people with their headphones in grocery shopping because you're bumping into people all the time. How you, you see someone, you're trying, you're like, excuse me, excuse me. They got the cart. They're taking up the whole aisle. Excuse me. And they can't hear you. So I go up, I rip out the rip out my AirPod. <laughs> I rip out the AirPod. I throw it across the grocery <laughs> store. And I say, get out of my way, you millennial. Uh, on that note, thank you for <laughs> sticking with us this long. And we'll see you next time.